Welcome to Evolutions of Astrology. This is Dina DeCastro. On this episode, I talk with astrologer Eric Myers about his new book, The Astrology of Awakening. Welcome. And I'm really excited to have Eric Myers back on again. He was on exactly two years ago today, as it turns out, as I record this interview. Uh, And we were talking at that time about his book, Elements in Evolution, the Spiritual Landscape of Astrology. He's written a new book called The Astrology of Awakening, Volume 1, Eclipse of the Ego. And I just found it to be um, very thought-provoking and very well-written Uh, I just always enjoy reading Eric's work and talking with him. So for those of you not familiar with Eric, he's an astrologer, teacher, and author living in Asheville, North Carolina. He holds an MA in Transpersonal Counseling Psychology from Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. His other works, other books include Elements and Evolution, The Spiritual Landscape of Astrology, Between Past and Presence, A Spiritual View of the Moon and Sun, and Uranus, the constant of change. His approach is spiritual, heart-centered, and practical. His passion is the renewal of astrology for the 21st century. So I really hope you'll enjoy my interview with Eric Myers. Well, Eric, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you on again. Thank you so much for having me, Dina. It is certainly a pleasure. And I'm really excited to talk about your new book, The Astrology of Awakening, Volume 1, Eclipse of the Ego. And we're going to be talking about some of the ideas that you uh, laid out in that book, which I found to be really groundbreaking and really thought-provoking. And I just want to say I I appreciate the effort and time it must have taken uh, to go into writing a book. And so you've written a few others as well, which I mentioned in the introduction. Um, but this one uh, just feels like you're tying together a lot of things from past books and then bringing them into this new paradigm, which is really the emerging field of transpersonal astrology. So can you lay out for uh, the listeners a little bit about what what is meant by that term transpersonal astrology? Sure. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks for, for that intro there. The... Um basic idea of transpersonal is trans means beyond and so beyond the personal meaning are we going to live life only uh, oriented to our self-interest and autonomy and separation consciousness Mm -hmm. or are we going to be able to move beyond that to embrace our broader interconnectedness and and so just transpersonal would be that invitation to expand so it's not to replace the familiar autonomy and, and orientation and separation but to complement that with also what's beyond right so it's not a, it's it's actually about breaking away from the dualistic mindset it's not about creating another yet another dualistic mindset in which we say uh, transpersonal good relative bad <laughs> you know right so, yeah yeah, no, we don't want to go into that. Um, I take great pains in, in the book to, um, you know, with the idea that we are complementing. Um, and so the relative is always, of course, completely uh, valid and useful and necessary, and that's our primary orientation all the time. And so it would be insane to think that we wouldn't be oriented in that way. Um, but the major question is, is that all that we are, involved in. And um, I believe that uh, there's actually a great consensus with science and with most religions that we do live within a unified energetic field of oneness. I I don't think that that is really that um, fringe. Mm -hmm. And so because that is the accepted reality, how can we, you know, orient our our astrology within that, that broader container? Right. I would say that the groundbreaking part of it for me was how you looked at astrology through this lens. 
and how the you know really the patriarchal value system as as you laid out in the book um, that we have primarily in this uh, this culture has really taken over astrology and how you know although we might think of astrology as a really kind of subversive fringe you know rebellious kind of art um, that we've been practicing it's actually been in your you know as you lay out in the book really uh, taken over by this more egoic mindset which is about serving the status quo you know it's about serving the ego's needs to get to get more of what it wants and to um, have self-gain and success as its ultimate goal. And so really, you know, it's about, um, as I understand what you're saying, that astrology has become uh, kind of consumed by this paradigm. So can well, you yeah, say a little more about that? Yeah, I would say that um, there isn't any sense of, of, value judgment of this being right or wrong or I just see it in terms of development is um, I like the the line that I've heard I, I don't know who the author of the line is who says you have to be somebody before you're nobody mm-hmm. and that basic idea that we need to secure our autonomy our healthy egoic functioning we need to be able to survive and be happy and to function right. um, that is totally relevant and valid and however is there more than that and so the transpersonal is the idea that we're also nobody is that we're just energy and within that energy there's a lot of stories of who we think we are and I believe that there's a lot of false self that gets developed as we are looking out for our own interests we have a story that I better compete or put other people down or uh, have this um, certain amount of, of stature in order for me to be uh, operating at a, at a high sense of well-being. Well, that may or may not be true. And, um, and so the preoccupation with the egoic level is where the trap is. But in and of itself, of course, it's valid and it's necessary. It's just the over-identification with it is, is the issue that I'm speaking to. Right. And that, you know, of course, we need a sense of of ourself and our ego, and we need to get our basic needs met. Um, But as you point out, the uh, astrology of old and really the roots of astrology derive from uh, the court astrologer model in which, you know, the astrologer was the uh, advisor to the king. And, you know, it was about how to get more of what the king wants, you know, how to how to succeed, how to become the best kingdom in the land or the best country. And in modern astrology, you know, it's often been used as a tool as well for people to say, you know, figure out how to get what my ego wants, how to get more money, how to get uh, my, how to find my soulmate, you know, those kind of questions. And nothing wrong with those questions, you know, and I certainly, I don't pick up that you're, you're shaming those questions in your book at all. I think, what you're asking and what you lay out is, well, what's beyond that? What's, what is really uh, some of the more pertinent questions right now for us as, as a species in terms of how we're going to move forward? It, yes, that's, that's exactly um, what, what the point is. And, um, and so, yeah, the, uh, the, the way that astrology is generally used is, of course, and how could it not be a reflection of the broader uh, consciousness that's existed that's been shaping it and using it? And so my view is that there isn't one way that we can understand astrology. It isn't a set kind of canon, and this is it. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, astrology evolves. Consciousness evolves. Uh, astrology is a reflection of our consciousness. And so one of the things I put down in, in the beginning of the book is the idea of, well, if you believe that astrology is unalterable, then that would be no different than, you know, like the Ten Commandments, and, and this is just handed down and, and it's unalterable. Or like every other field, mm-hmm. is there a evolution within the field? And my view is that astrology isn't a religion. It is 
a developing set of understandings of the cosmos that shifts according to our consciousness. Right. And some of how you describe that is, um, if we're talking planetary archetypes, is between Saturn and Uranus. What's the tension there? You know, Saturn is about the attachment to the past, the uh, potentially the relative view of things where, uh, you know, we, we have goals and we want to succeed and we have a very uh, kind of a set idea of how that's all supposed to look. And a lot of it lies in, uh, as you put it, the patriarchal value system. And so Uranus plays a strong role in, in your book. You've actually written an entire book on Uranus as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about the tension between Uranus and Saturn as they describe uh, this issue? Yeah, great question. I'm so glad we're, we're talking about this. This is really the, the core of the issue, is that the planet Uranus was discovered in 1781. And although that sounds like a long time ago, it really isn't. It's only 230-some-odd years. And, uh, and look at the whole history of the world and the look at the history of astrology and just the history of our, you know, operating as humans on this planet. Uh, it's really, really recent. And therefore, Saturn has held the governing principles um, that we operate within. And Saturn is, so to speak, the organizer of separation consciousness and the manifest world. And uh, that's been necessary. As we said, you got to be somebody before you're nobody. And you got to operate in the manifest world. And, and you got to, you know, see to your own interests and all of that. And, and so astrology itself, which, um, well, there's many, many different kinds of and cultures and, and epics of astrology, most of them um, are, you know, much older than the 18th century. Mm -hmm. uh, the astrology that we've inherited uh, really was developed under the understanding that not only was Saturn the outermost planet, but everything revolved around the Earth. And even the way that we, we view the, the system is we look at the sun and, and moon uh, as equal opposites. And uh, the moon is called, called a, a luminary. And, uh, but now that we know what we know, now the, everything revolves around the sun and the moon is reflective of the sun's light. And so this modernization is what Uranus is really about, about shifting our perspectives uh, in ways that are different than the way we've always organized it under the prior assumptions. Mm -hmm. And and so this shift, this awakening, and the planet Uranus is often talked about as the great awakener, uh, this shift is really what I see happening uh, across the globe right now. Uh, yes. I, I know that later on we'll talk a bit more about the Uranus-Pluto square, but this is the fundamental shift. Are we going to just just live in the Saturnian world, or are we going to understand the Saturnian world itself as being orbiting inside the Uranian world? Right. And so, so that is, is the, the basic idea. Is so, so we're healing this mythic castration between Saturn, who, uh, Kronos, who castrates his father, Oranos, and, uh, and that's symbolic of the transpersonal being removed. And now I believe we're healing that castration. Mm, yeah. So it, you also uh, bring Mercury into the picture here and something you call Mercury's great heist, uh, which involves the relationship really between Mercury and Uranus as well. Uh, what, what would you say about the great heist? What is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, that phrase was because uh, Mercury itself is known as a thief yeah. in mythology and a trickster. And, um, and so it's kind of uh, putting forth the idea as um, has the thief actually stolen astrology? Um, because, again, Uranus wasn't discovered. And the Uranian way of seeing things is through the transpersonal lens. It isn't about dualism and about uh, yes and no and male and female and, um, and any other uh, polarity, uh, right and wrong or good and bad. Is, uh, that's Mercury's lens. So... Um, and so astrology developed with Mercury as the leading lens on, on how we're going to view it, because that's within the Saturnian world. And therefore, everything in astrology is pretty much uh, split up in very dualistic ways. 
uh, you have the, the benefics and the malefics, and you have everything is split up in terms of being masculine or feminine. And uh, although there is relevance to uh, Mercury, of course, um, it's not the only way that we can see everything in the system. And so my invitation is to see uh, Uranus as it's often considered the higher octave of Mercury, the higher mind rather than the lower mind, which is preoccupied with good and bad. The higher mind is able to look at everything in terms of its evolutionary value and purpose without judging that this is better or worse for me or more favorable or unfavorable because that goes back, of course, to egoic self-interest. And there is relevance there. I mean, you have uh, your planet Venus in your chart, and you look at what happens when when Jupiter transits your Venus versus Saturn, and you'll probably see that all things considered, you know, things are going to be more beneficial for your ego when Jupiter hits your your Venus rather than Saturn. Right. Um, But that's not always the case. That's just the the statistics. If you are really doing your, your Saturn well, and you're mature, and you're organized, and you have earned something, Saturn hitting your Venus could very well uh, turn into something, uh, concretizing something very powerful for you. But if you look at just the statistics, all things you know, being equal, Jupiter is more benefic uh, for the ego. And so that's what I talk about in, in, the, uh, in the book. It's like, if you want to keep that you know, slogan, it's the great benefic, just <laughs> add to the ego, because that's really what it you know, what benefits by it. But the soul is not interested in things being easy or beneficial. The soul is interested in growth. And that is the principal point, is that everything in astrology promotes growth. Mm -hmm. It's just all different energetic frequencies that are involved with evolution. And so my view is that we can look at all the planets like the various colors of the rainbow. And uh, you might have a preference for blue over yellow, but that doesn't mean that yellow isn't beautiful and valuable. And so there's that basic uh, invitation to level all of the judgments and see everything in terms of evolution. Yeah. Well, it strikes me with that particular example you used with Jupiter to Venus versus Saturn to Venus that it's really... Uh, it is all about your perspective of it. It's, you know, I may find that, and I just did have Jupiter on my Venus, so uh, I got a little extra money, I got some new clothes, you know, some cool things mm-hmm. happen like that. It's like, wow, you know, so the ego is getting all puffed up and happy about that. And yet, if if I'm coming from the place of um, a deeper perspective of what my soul needs for its growth. If Saturn's going to then go over my Venus or whenever it, it aspects Venus next, uh, there might be the opportunity. Uh, I could see the positives of that, you know, doing some creative work that manifests or crystallizes into an accomplishment that's, that's really real, you know, whereas it's just been an idea or uh, Saturn on Venus can be deeper commitment in a relationship Uh, But it might feel like, you know, to the ego that could be fearful or challenging or feels like hard work, but it's in how you, uh, how you're looking at it, you know. And so as we moved, as I'm hearing you, as we move towards the transpersonal perspective, we can take those, uh, what would be called difficult transits from a quote malefic and see them uh, for the gifts that they offer us on a soul level rather than just what the ego needs. Yeah. And, and Saturn is really very crucial in this whole discussion because Saturn is the gateway mm-hmm. towards Uranus and the outer planets. And so um, my view is that Saturn pertains to the reality principle. And when we fully accept reality, then we're able to see the intelligence that's embedded within it, which is Uranus. Saturn is orbits within Uranus. When we don't accept reality, we're oblivious to the intelligence, the evolutionary opportunities that every possible situation and moment might be presenting. And so I have a quote here from the book um, that I want to read um, under the the section, The Awakened Saturn. This is from Byron Katie, a spiritual teacher. 
and she really captures what this point is. She says, uh, what happens is the best thing that can happen. People who can't see this are simply believing their own thoughts and have to stay stuck in the illusion of a limited world, lost in the war with what is. It's a war they'll always lose because it argues with reality, and reality is always benevolent. Mm -hmm. What actually happens is the best that can happen, whether you understand it or not. And until you understand it, there is no peace. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, and it's funny because I had uh, written in the margin of one of the, the pages to talk with you about Byron Katie, and, and I know she's probably been an influence on you. She's been someone that I've um, really gotten so much from her work as well. Uh, where she popped into my head was when you discuss the, uh, the awakened Mercury versus the egoic Mercury. And as it relates to this, it's like really this idea that we can turn around any thought that we have. You know, if we believe something's bad, we can take that, that, thought that, you know, this is bad, or this is a negative experience and turn it around and really see how it is just as true. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's, that's where her thought work, um, as it relates to this seems like a really powerful way of, of grounding it. You know, it's, it is this practical, you know, as, as much as working with your thoughts can give you, um, the freedom to see things from this other perspective. Yeah, I love um, a line from Shakespeare who uh, forgot which, I think it might be in Hamlet, but he says, nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Mm. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, Byron Katie's work has us turn things inside out and seeing the relative nature of the mind. And so this is, goes contrary to everything that we're taught in school growing up. We're taught that there's an objective world that we could understand and master and, and use intelligently. And so uh, most of us are kind of conditioned to see things more in absolutes. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, when you get to beyond Saturn, you see that Mercury is within Saturn, therefore everything is relative. And uh, this is something that many people have a hard time with. With the, with the relative nature of our understanding. Right. Um, many, many times we don't stop and realize, you know, I'm looking out the window, I see a tree. You know, who named it a tree? How did they know that the name should be tree? You know, who says that we can't call it something else? But we have this agreed upon consensus reality where when you say tree, we know it's a tree. That's relative. You know, the tree very well could have been named a gurk or something, and, and always been called that, and you and I were just using that phrase, or that term for tree, and no one would have ever think something's a mess. And so the point being is that the way we understand everything and the way we conceive of it and, and even how we use things are within relative frameworks, right. and that's Mercury. And so when you get to Uranus, it turns everything upside down into paradoxical understandings, and there is no um, absolute certainties about things. You have to be uh, able to almost be in a quantum understanding where um, we understand that life is just probability fields that get activated. There isn't any really certainty to things. Um, and that's very threatening to the ego. And therefore, that's why the transpersonal has been castrated. Well, and, and in that same section about Mercury, um, you quote Nikola Tesla, uh, a quote that I love. It says that my brain is only a receiver in the universe. There is a core from which we obtain knowledge, strength, inspiration. And, you know, so that is really what we're talking about here is the idea that the mind and our filter, you know, Mercury is a small portion or it's it's a filter. I mean, it's it's not it's not the whole it's not spirit so coming to that realization is really what's called for in this process of awakening yeah and so with that i'm so glad you mentioned that because it brings in the idea that the book is really oriented around organized around is are we humans primarily who may or may not have you know spiritual experiences or or um, that identification 
or are we spiritual beings that are having human experiences? And so that would be more or less what the shift is, because most of life and most of astrology as a reflection of life comes from the identification of that you are just human, uh, and that's who you are. You're a human being, and everything that could be called spiritual, we just don't know. There's uncertainty. There's different you know, opinions about that, so let's stay with what we do know, which is the physical, which is human. We are physical beings. And so that's within Saturn, is, is the organization of physical separation consciousness. And then with Uranus, we really understand that we're just energy, and we're all interconnected within energy. And energy is from, it is, the oneness of spirit. And so we can identify as energy that is temporarily having a human experience within physical form. Mm-hmm. And if that is the case, which you know, there's pretty compelling evidence uh, across the board that that is the case, then we need to change how we approach astrology uh, rooted in the human condition. No, we need to root it within the spiritual condition then in order to, to have it be more accurate with, with reality. Yeah, and that's, that's actually a good segue into uh, a, a good portion of your book that I did want to be sure to bring in, which is the discussion of the sun and the moon, which... Now, again, you have covered this in part in other uh, books, but really here you lay out the idea that the moon um, is, you know, we used to really equate sun masculine ego, right? And that used, that's been the traditional astrology paradigm that the sun equals ego or the sun yeah. is the masculine. Um, and you're saying that the moon really is um, the human conditions relationship to egoic preferences and the sun is about awakening to spirit. Um, so can you yeah. unpack that a little bit? Yeah, this is um, the real crux of my, my work and, and, um, and how even how I work with clients and, and what I'm really you know, doing with my career is, is really championing this, this view. And so there's a lot to say on it. Um, and so let, let me just start by, by saying that um, if you look at the astronomy, Again, the moon uh, is within Saturn's orbit. And so for the moon is within the dualistic world. And therefore, the moon orbits around the Earth. And we are stationed on the Earth. We are kind of surrounded by lunar energy of unconsciousness, of um, human vulnerability, uh, of things that are dualistic. And therefore, we see things in terms of lunar consciousness good and bad, male and female, because that's where we're oriented. That's where we are. Um, I, I mentioned in the book that no longer does science think of the moon as something away from the earth. We are a dyad. We are, uh, this is a system, a unit, the earth-moon unit. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, that's our humanness, in my view. And it's dualistic. So you can see both masculine and feminine within the moon, is my view. Do men have emotions? Do men have unconsciousness? Do they have needs? Do men have families? Do they have um, everything to do with being a vulnerable human? So to me, the moon is, is, is the requirements to eat and sleep and love and to take care of the basic functioning of the human uh, vessel. And so within all of that, yes, the, the feminine is uh, able to give birth and have wombs um, but it's, it's totally connected in with the masculine as a pair. Uh, and so the masculine does play a role with, with mating and with families. Of course they yeah, do. Of course. Um, and so th- historically we see the moon just as the feminine, but if we see that it can be human and it's within the dualistic world, of course things that are masculine can be part of the moon. Um, I, I, a lot of people might have difficulty with that idea, but to me, it's absolutely obvious and basic. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the idea then that the sun, if you look at the astronomy, Saturn orbits around the sun. It, it is held in place by the energy of source energy. And so it only has meaning and relevance, the separation uh, world, Saturn, because our source energy, which is the sun, Uh, allows it to be so. And so in my view, the sun is our source energy. It's the um, 
It's the awakening into presence, into broader awareness, into things that are beyond the human. And so the analogy that I use in my work is that the moon is like the seed and the sun is the flowering and the sun is sustained by the light and heat, the, the flower is sustained by the light and heat of the sun, which it grows up towards and it's made of that. And so that's the same thing here is that we're rooted in the human condition with the moon and then we're growing up to spiritual realization to the idea, oh my God, I'm just energy and I'm part of all energy, all of oneness, and that's what the sun is. And so seeing the sun as ego would connote that sun, which has to do with oneness of source energy, of the interconnectedness of, of all energy, is ego. So we're seeing sun as separate, mm. but, um, but if you look at the sun, it radiates outwards, just like you look at a candle. You light a candle, and the whole room is illuminated. You know, so the sun cannot be a statement of separation consciousness if it's about the radiation of energy that connects with all energy. And so my view is that seeing the sun as ego is just a reflection of our egoic organization that we were speaking about earlier. And then seeing the sun as, in terms of the masculine, really reflects patriarchy. And, and basically patriarchy is that um, basically men are in charge of the planet uh, through conquest, through government, through being kings and, and dictators and, and what have you. And that to me is what I call the egoic takeover is a term or phrase I use throughout the book mm -hmm. is seeing energy as something that we own rather than something that we borrow. Mm -hmm. right. And that is the, the, the basic shift of consciousness is to give the sun back to spirit. We only borrow its energy. We cannot own and define it as our own. Well, it's like that metaphor of the candle, you know, it would be like thinking that the candle is the sun where it's, it's actually just a, a fire that's borrowed its energy originally from the sun. Yes. I use that. I love that analogy. And, and that's perfect. Um, you know, the, the, the moon is analogous to the wax. Mm -hmm. It's physical, it's separate and, um, and, and, and just defined on its own terms. And then the flame of a candle is like the sun. And, and the, one, the beautiful thing about this is that uh, you can have a large source of uh, fire and everyone can light their own individual candle off of that fire. And that's the way I see the sun, is that it's paradoxically you, it's your energy, it's your awareness, it's your presence, and at the same time, your energy connects in with the big fire source, all of the energy. And so we're bridging worlds through our fire. We're bridging separation to unity. But if we only see life in terms of separation, then we shut off the, the flame as being part of, of the larger fire and say, no, this is just my flame. Right, exactly. And, and that is pretty silly because we're all going to die <laughs> and we know it. And our energy just goes back to source, you know, whether we want to or not. So my sense is let's give it back now rather than claim ownership. And then we could all join together as part of this oneness of, of, of energy. Exactly. And, you know, you, I really want to clarify um, a point that you make in the book is that this isn't about saying that the moon is less evolved and the sun is more evolved or that the moon is somehow uh, just, you know, a, a bad thing and the sun is good or to be sought after and the moon should be negated. And I think that would be a really erroneous um, thing to come away with here. So, uh, yeah. I just want to bring that forward a little more and say uh, you do address that pointedly in the book, and, and I'll give you the opportunity to go a little into detail here about that. Yeah, well, I have a whole chapter in the book called The Sacred Marriage, which is about um, you know, bridging um, spiritual realization and creativity, the sun, with physicality in the manifest world, which is the moon. That's the whole point is synthesis and integration. Um, but the, the evolutionary motion that we have to do is we have to release what we are holding on to in the vessel of the moon. For instance, um, we fill it up with our own wounds, our own stories, our own egoic preferences. Um, all this you might call the false self. Mm -hmm. um, you might have an experience 
when you're nine years old that, um, let's say, hypothetically, that men are, are bank robbers and they're abusive people and, and uh, that someone might have that story based on some experience. So, so they're, they're operating with this, with this story. And so the moon is where we accumulate all these different things based on our experiences. Dogs are dangerous. Um, you know, someone might say, oh, Islamic people fly, um, you know, jets into, into skyscrapers. Um, and so we have all these stories. And so the moon, we have to clean out uh, the, the, the moon. So because all that has to do with the past. Everything that you have a story about already happened yesteryear. Mm-hmm. And yesteryear is a reflection of a certain level of consciousness that was around. Um, so we can either perpetuate that level of consciousness and those stories and those experiences, or we can just see them for what they are. Everything is just simply energy, and everything else is our story and interpretation of that energy. And so we can heal our stories by releasing them because they're no longer relevant if we want to be in the present which is what the sun is about. And so we have to let go of the past. We have to let go of the conditioning of the stories of all these egoic, you know, preferences about life. And so um, a lot of spiritual practice, you know, discusses um, this idea of letting things go, purging the past. Um, and so you could be in the now, so you could be in the present. And, and so therefore, ultimately, the moon then is a, uh, open vessel, mm-hmm. a container for spiritual creativity and awareness when we get ourselves out of the way, the false self. Right. All those things that I mentioned that get in the way of spiritual realization. And so we're, we're cleansing the moon so we can be, uh, give the arms and legs to spirit in physical form. Exactly. So, I mean, really, as you call it, the moon is a vehicle for evolution. It's, yeah. not, it's not an obstacle to our evolution. No, not at all. And I like how Ken Wilber says that the ego is a radiant manifestation of spirit. Mm. But how many people, this is what I'll tell you right here, how many people go around and say, I'm a radiant manifestation of spirit? <laughs> no, they say, who are you? My name is Eric Myers or Dina DeCastro. And you identify within as, as a human, like I was saying before. That's part of our development. There's nothing wrong with this. But you know, we're also learning to identify as, yes, I'm a radiant manifestation of spirit. Right. right. Um, yeah. So, so I think that's what we're doing. We're getting out the over-identification with the human, you know, kind of, uh, you know, false self that I've been speaking about. We're, we're over-identified with, with our, um, you know, exactly. autonomy. Mm-hmm. Well, and you, you spend um, some time in the book talking about, you know, what, what does need to be changed, as you call it, deconstruction and reconstruction of astrology in the 21st century, and um, so that we can move forward on this path. And uh, I loved in that chapter about deconstruction, how you talked about, I mean, you brought in the old terms, we, you talked about benefics and malefics, and you know, planetary placements in terms of fall, detriment, exaltation, and dignity, how those in traditional astrology have been viewed in dualistic, good, bad uh, language. Um, mm-hmm. But but you don't say, let's toss out those terms. You say, well, here's, here's how we can view this through the transpersonal lens. So how... How did you kind of find your way to that? And maybe uh, just talk a little bit about, I, I was particularly interested in the planetary placements, fall, detriment, exaltation, dignity, and how you really turn that around to mean something different. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is um, a very uh, juicy uh, part of the uh, book I found is that uh, in, in the beginning of the book, I discuss uh, the patriarchal value system and uh, many of the, the ways that uh, patriarchy has, um, you know, preferences of, of how we live. And, and amongst that, you know, things to, to, to do with conquest and, 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 and the rugged individual. And then you can see the sun exalted in, in Aries. And then you can see there's such a need for money and security uh, while the moon is exalted in Taurus. And then you can see uh, this value of precision and results and methodology 
and and uh, we could see the Mercury exalted in Virgo. And then I do, I I, I show this throughout the whole um, system, and saying that that is um, one way, that um, one value system. And um, with when you get out to Uranus, and we level these distinctions, um, there might be other. Uh, ways that we can promote certain values mm-hmm. that are, are, are might be different than the exaltation system. And so I even go as far as to say that if you look at what is called the fall, you could see much of the remedy for patriarchy. Uh, for instance, the sun uh, in its fall in Libra. Libra is the idea of our interconnectedness, that uh, namaste, I can see the light of divinity within you. And when I look out for your interest, then we all benefit. And so this isn't to say that we should be promoting in any way uh, the falls. It's just saying that our judgments come from a value system. And, and none of it is, is uh, just the way it is. It's all the way we want to use the system in, in certain ways, I think, that are uh, operating and motivated by self-gain. And so what I like to offer in the book is that we become a lot more gentle about um, looking at these um, designations uh, and giving our power away to them. Uh, what I like to do is, is to empower the reader to view it uh, from a different angle and see what is the uh, motivation underneath these things. And then to present the alternative, which I call in the book Universal Principles that everything has evolutionary value. I think so much harm has been done when, when people, students or clients or, or anyone interested in astrology um, somehow get the idea that something is wrong mm. in their chart, that there's something bad or something that is less favorable. Uh, it really inhibits um, uh, it, us to, to, to claim this is true evolutionary uh, purpose. And so, yeah, I have a lot of um, recommendations in the book um, about how we can we can view view things differently. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I come across that a lot with with uh, clients that know a little bit about astrology and their charts. They'll come in and say things like, "Oh, you know, I have a really weak Mars. You know, it's in Pisces or whatever the case right. is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a bad Mars." And somebody told them that at some point along the way. And so uh, I found, you know, for myself, I've just kind of been working for years as an as an evolutionary astrologer to move people away from that uh, that view. Uh, and I know you have been as well. Well, my view is is that it's useful to understand the inner workings of the ego. Yeah. And so there, it's very instructive to see how conventional astrology is approached and used because it's it's a very clear you know window into the ego and so um, I think it's instructive um, but uh, do I think that we should continue it uh, along those lines no I don't um, I think it's it's a step in our in our evolution and and my view is that every single field that's ever existed makes modernizations and adaptations that are relevant to the consciousness that now exists that's just what evolution is and um, one of the greatest surprises of my life is that astrology, at least from my limited perspective, tends to be a lot more conservative than I ever imagined. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's a lot of, of energy on preserva- uh, preserving, even things that, um, in my view, seem really clearly outdated. Um, because the idea goes back to... Um, is there any free will? Can we really co-create what happens with our charts? And if the answer is yes, then uh, Mars and Pisces is, uh, is just as beautiful as Mars and Capricorn mm-hmm. because it's what you do with it. And this is the critical point, is that is the astrology in charge of you or do you have a co-creative relationship with it? Yeah. And so if you can handle your chart, from more spiritual realization or awareness or awakened or enlightenment or whatever term you like, then any chart becomes an incredible beauty orchestra, beautiful orchestration of energy. But if you're in the darkness of unconscious ego, you can have 
all the wonderful things or so-called wonderful things, and it isn't going to manifest because uh, in, in opportune ways because you are not, you know, living your life, you know, aligned with that. And so my view is that uh, conventional astrology does have a lot of remnants of taking away people's free will, that you are locked into a certain life because of this in your chart and there's nothing you can do about it, so you may as well just accept it. Um, and I think that is actually very toxic and disempowering for people. Um, you know, so I put in plenty of examples of people who are accentuated in the falls and the detriments. Uh, and there's usually people who are disrupting the patriarchal value system. For instance, Nicholas Copernicus had Mercury in Pisces, mm. Thomas Jefferson, uh, Mercury in Pisces, Galileo. Those are three examples, and they were disrupted uh, to, because of their imagination and inspiration, they were disruptive to the prevailing, more conservative status quo that they were you know, uh, arguing uh, against with their visionary things. So, so my view is that the uh, exaltation system actually really promotes this patriarchal value system that is what we're waking up from. So I, I don't have a view that we should preserve that. Mm -hmm. um, my view is that we need to learn from that and, and, and how it's reflective of, of ego. It's kind of like we need to understand where we've come from so that we can yeah. move forward. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so my, in my research that there is no correlation whatsoever with having things in exaltation um, versus a fall uh, as being um, in, in better in any way. It's all how you use it. Yeah. And so there's equal amount of, of, of evidence for people with the so-called poor placements who do them consciously. And the book has, has tons of, of um, examples for, for every single planet uh, for that. Well, yes, you know, and um, as, as we sit here kind of on the eve of Uranus-Pluto uh, coming into their second exact square uh, yeah. and Pluto stationing direct today uh, as we do this interview, um, what is at stake here? And, you know, what really prompted you and drove you to, to write this book and to get this information out there? What is at stake for us as uh, as a species, as we're on the verge of a time of huge change. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I got into astrology in the 90s, and, um, and I quickly became a geek. And I noticed that in 2012, we would be in the midst of this current astrology. And so I've had my mind on it for um, well over a dozen years. And so I intentionally uh, planned to write the Awakening book uh, to come out in 2012. Mm. I've been writing it, so to speak, for, you know, 10 to 12 years. Mm. And, I, and my other books were kind of the preamble for this one and preparing it and getting my ideas organized. And, um, and so this is a very conscious choice in my mind because I wanted to put out a book that was uh, very much within the spirit of the broader awakening that is happening um, on this planet which is what Uranus-Pluto is about. And Pluto and Capricorn has a lot to do with plutocracy or things that are oligarchic and patriarchal about the, about the dominant elitist power structure is one way to view Pluto and Capricorn. And then Uranus and Aries square it is new ideas, um, new leadership, new uh, directions. Uh, and it's up to the individual in Aries to petition these dominant power um, you know, structures, and that's what you see, you know, all over the place in various different ways, um, you know, on, on, on the planet right now, is individuals are taking it upon themselves to, um, to go up against uh, what's unfair, uh, what is tilted towards the elites. Uh, Occupy Wall Street, you mentioned, that's, of course, you know, um, came, came around a year ago uh, with the Uranus-Pluto Square um, really, um, you know, applying uh, very tightly. And, and so um, that's what I think is a crucial issue. Are we going to uh, break it apart uh, hierarchy, which is a Saturnian, um, you know, thing, is, is, uh, is something is better than something else, uh, something is more useful, something has more utility in the manifest world, and then you extend that to people, 
being, uh, you know, better. Uh, and this is the horror we've noticed on this planet, uh, where, where certain peoples are treated as less than, uh, because their utility is seen as less in some way, or just blatant, you know, more underlying psychological reasons, not just about, you know, manifesting, you know, you, you know, on the earth level, but, uh, but on an emotional, psychological level, there's also ways that we've seen uh, certain people as, um, in, in less than ways. And so this creates this whole hierarchical thing. Where are you in the, in the pecking order? And so I discuss uh, patriarchy having six different um, sides to it uh, within the Western world, focusing on the U.S. I mean, basically white, male, wealthy, heterosexual, Christian, and older are the six different pillars. Mm-hmm. And, if you, and however many you have checked off in those six, then you're more likely to have and maintain power in this, in this country. And, and uh, we see this uh, pretty neatly split up in the two parties and this election. I mean, if you look at the Republican convention, you know, how many people there were either all of those six things or aspire to be in some way uh, is pretty striking. Yeah. And, and then the Democrat Party seems to be uh, representing the other, that it doesn't matter where you are in any of those different factors. You are valuable. We're all equal. And, um, and, and we shouldn't have this hierarchical uh, organization. And so we see this just on the uh, globe right now, this whole thing about, about power structures uh, opening up. And so that's really what I believe the Awakening Book is offering to the astrology world as well. Let's break up hierarchical ways that we see everything and we got to look at what's the underlying motivation. You know, and a lot of people do want to be a king. And they go to an astrologer and they say, when's my queen coming? <laughs> right. You know? Right. And so that there is a demand for that. People do look at astrology as Jupiter's coming to my Venus. I'm going to play the lottery. You know, there is that mentality out there and that has shaped. But I think right now, we're moving beyond it. And, uh, and so we need to go through many years of clashing in order to figure out how we want to move beyond it and the issues involved with it. And that's the square. Square is challenge. It's conflict. It's, it's gritty. It's not easy to reconcile. And so I know uh, very well that a lot of people are not going to digest what I have to write in this book that easily. And that's okay. You know, it doesn't need to be. But I think it's the important questions that we need to address over the the entire um, square, which goes on for about a decade. Well, I found so much in the book valuable. um, And, you know, it should be noted, too, that you do get very specific with uh, at least, you know, moon and sun as far as sign placements and how uh, the moon, you walk through the signs of the moon and how it relates to kind of the egoic need to preserve oneself in a very difficult world, you know, and the fears yeah. that we, the fears that we accrue and the story that we start to tell ourselves based on our experience of this very challenging world that we live in. And you walk through the signs in terms of that and the sun as the path to awakening as it moves through the signs, you know, what, what can we um, open up to learn, you know, as we open up to the light of the sun through the signs so yeah. there's there is some very grounded um, practical uh, elements of your book too that um, really can be so informative I think uh, to to just about anyone interested in astrology. Um, yeah, well, one thing I'll say about the moon, and this is what it all comes down to, and uh, this is the major overarching point of the book, is that the moon wants and needs love, mm-hmm. and how many people have experienced unconditional love all the time in their life. Yeah. Very few could say that. Right. And, and so my, my view is what we're actually doing is to, we're awakening to the realization that love, this is unconditional spirit, is available and operable everywhere at all time. We just have amnesia about that, and we have insecurities about that, and we believe that love needs to be earned in some way or discovered in some way, and none of that's true. And so a lot of the uh, strategizing in the moon is really motivated by how do I get love? Mm-hmm. How am I going to just feel okay, secure in my emotional foundation? That's the moon. 
Right. And so we concoct, we concoct these highly elaborate strategies of how we're going to fill up, um, you know, the void where we we have amnesia um, about love. And therefore, then these moon issues play out in family, play out with our our loved ones um, or unloved ones, <laughs> what have you, <laughs> around the issue of of love. That's what family and and cancer and the moon is about. So we reincarnate in the familiar environment where emotional issues are um, played out, yeah. and that's what the moon is about. And therefore part of the um, spiritual realization is the understanding that love comes from within. Mm -hmm. We don't have to earn it from outside. It's not other people's job to give it to us. It is abundantly available. And when we arrive at true unconditional self-love, then our ship, so to speak, is sturdy enough to have that, uh, you know, venture into the unknown. Like we said before, you got to be somebody before you're nobody. And so when we do feel that, that, um, that um, you know, foundation of, of self-love, um, that's what we were looking for the whole time. So, so much of the moon is where we don't get love or we're anxious about receiving it, and, and that plays out in a wide variety of ways. Mm-hmm. It always comes back to self-love, doesn't it? <laughs> it, yes, it really does. To. And so that's why I write in, in, the, uh, in the book that uh, this is actually an epic love story, um, what the marriage between the sun and moon is, yeah. is that the moon is, is, uh, is much smaller than the sun. 64 million moons fit inside the sun, and it only reflects the light of the sun. And, and it, it can be lost in the darkness, and, and we don't know who we are, or are things going to be okay? It's an uncertain world. And then we are awakening to trust the universe, to trust what is outside of us, to surrender into it, to know that we're held within this loving, intelligent, spiritual container, and then we can relax the egoic survival needs. Because we experience love. That's perfect. And, you know, so volume one uh, of the astrology of awakening implies that there is a volume two. Um, So would you like to uh, tell the listeners a little bit about what they can expect in the upcoming volume? Yeah. Um, This book was uh, purposely uh, a more philosophical book, Uh, just putting out what a new paradigm that centers around Spirit rather than ego um, is, is like, and all the issues involved with that. So I didn't take on chart application and counseling issues and, and how to really work with this stuff on a more hands-on level. So that's what uh, Volume 2 is. It's going to be um, Astrology of Awakening 2, uh, chart application and counseling, because um, I've been working with clients for many years now around how do you resolve the moon? How do we love the moon how do we, um, you know, partner with it in, in a more awake way? And so there's a variety of different uh, techniques and strategies that I have that I'm going to be putting in um, Volume 2. Um, and so there's a lot of issues to address uh, beyond the moon of, of how do we refashion astrology uh, when you sit down with charts that is consistent with everything I'm writing in Volume 1. So it's going to be an ambitious work. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's also, you know, what I've been working on, you know, privately with my clients and with my writing for, for many years. So I have a lot of ideas about it, um, but it's basically the uh, chart application book. Well, I think it will be so valuable for astrologers. And uh, I want to thank you again for your time today and for uh, taking the time and all the work that goes into the writing that you've done. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. And um Thank you for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Dina. It's always a joy for me to talk about this, this work, and, and um, I'm so glad that it's, it resonates with you and, and, and having me on. Um, yeah, so beautiful, and, and I wish you well. Thank you, Eric.